Uh, if you've been with us though the past few weeks, we finished a mini-series, a mini-series called um, Life with God. And the whole premise is that we naturally live a life under God or a life over God or a life for God, where God, he's an author- authoritative figure or he's somebody who we just use or somebody we do things for. Um, but the whole premise of scripture is actually to tell us that God wants to relate a life, have a life with us. Um, but one thing that we've been kind of teasing is, well, what does that look like though? What does it look like to live a life with God? Or more importantly, how can we experience this? And so I'm really excited to start this new series, which is called Practicing the Way of Jesus. And we're going to do an introduction to this series by looking at a famous text in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. If you guys have it in your programs, it's there. If you want to use your Bibles, your apps, use that as well. Uh, One thing that we do at our church, though, is we really believe that God, he's not an ancient text who's dead, but we believe in a living God who speaks to us now. And so if you're able to, can we all rise as we read this passage together? So Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. So starting in verse 25, it writes, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I pray for us real quickly? Father, would you bless us? Help us to understand what your words, and especially God, may we, O oh God, be able to apply it into our lives. Would you bless, O Lord, this time as we hear you speak and just lift up, O Lord, our time together today in your son's name. Amen. You may please be seated. So during the pandemic that happened, I did what a lot of maybe you folks try to do while stuck at home. I tried to build a homemade gym. The reason why was, like many of you, I felt very unhealthy as the time passed at home. All the local gyms were closed, and so I decided I'm going to make myself a gym. Because I saw other people do it on YouTube. I heard some of you all did it. And so I decided to make my atrium into my own little gymnasium where I purchased a bunch of weights. Not just weights, but free weights. Uh, And I used to work out back in the day, but I never used free weights before. So I looked up on YouTube, how do you use free weights? What's the most effective exercises? And not only that, I was working out differently this time. Back in the day when I worked out, I'd always lift to get bigger and more muscular. This time, I was just trying to lose weight, just trying to lose all the fat that I gained. And that's a different type of workout. And so I looked up all the information, I bought all the weights, I had my atrium all set up, and if you knew me during the pandemic time, you would have known that after purchasing all that, my body never changed. I looked exactly the same throughout the pandemic. And the reason why is because I learned how to exercise, but I never exercised. I never used it. It's to this day, that little atrium of all the weights is just collecting dust. I would sell it on Amazon, but I'm too lazy. It's just there, sitting making me feel guilty. And I realized the reason by that why that happened looking back is that exercise and lifting weights, it was an idea and it was a theory, but it never translated into real life change. It never really applied into my life. And the reason why I share that is I think a lot of us, that's how we experience Christianity. For a lot of us here, Christianity, the faith, Jesus, it's an idea, it's a theory, that we believe, we accept, but it doesn't translate into real-life change. 
I mean, how often is it for us, we go to church, we hear a message that we're convicted by, or we read a book that we really enjoy, talking about Christianity, going, I agree with everything this book is saying. Or there's a podcast we listen to, going, that is such a really insightful podcast. And we agree and just affirm it. And then you go back home and nothing changes. You're living the exact same life as you were before that church service, before that podcast, before that book. And we're just as anxious and depressed and burdened as if without the podcast, it's there. And our lifestyle, to be honest, looks exactly the same. And I don't really blame us. I don't think that's just an individual thing that's a problem. I think the modern church, when we look at it, we do a really good job in every church. I'm like pretty positive in any church you go to, and especially like in California and SoCal, they do a really good job of teaching you ideas. In other words, theology. Uh, You will know theology by coming to church, but one thing that the modern church really struggles with is practice. In other words, discipleship. Like, are we discipling our our people? And so what ends up happening is when you have churches that do that, churches are filled with people and communities that learn a lot of information. But as I've been saying a lot, there's not a lot of transformation. There's not a lot of change taking place. And, uh, this, this, and the reason why is because transformation, I sh- I've been showing this a couple of times, which I believe it's not uh, an invention. I think this is a discovery. Like this is how people change, which is um, you have teaching where you, we have to learn, but we also need practices where we do it, we practice it, and we do it within a community and all through the power of the Spirit, that's where transformation takes place. And when I look at them, I'm like, that's just so true. That's just a reality of how people really change. There's teaching, there's practices, it's in the community, and through the power of the Spirit, there's transformation. But what happens for a lot of us is, it's not this, but this is what our, our lives look like. There's teaching. You're, you're here, and you're hearing teaching, and we're convicted, or the podcast, and the Spirit might be moving, but we don't change because there's nothing else. And so what I want to do, and what our church hopes to do, is these next two months... We want to clarify this. We want to talk about, well, what does the practices look like? What practices must I do in order to help the Spirit to be channeled for me to really change and be transformed? And I mentioned this because uh, our goal that we mentioned earlier is for this upcoming year is to become a community practicing the way of Jesus in our lives. We want to be a community where we're not just learning, but we're really transforming. Now, how do we do this, though? How do we do this? What practices are we even talking about? What do we need to do? And what I hope to do today is to introduce this series uh, by looking at the passage we just read. It's a very familiar passage. You probably heard this passage several times in your life, uh, but I don't think it's a fully understood passage. I feel like it's a little bit abstract, and I hope to clarify what it's saying. And we're going to look at it and under the heading, uh, three different headings. Uh, through this passage, we're going to see, number one, an invitation for the weary. Secondly, the secret of the yoke. And then third, the practices of Jesus. So the invitation, the secret, and the practices. And just to let you guys know, if you want to see further resources, a lot of these ideas, not just today, but this whole series, there are a couple of books I'd highly recommend. One book is this book called The Possibility of Prayer by John Stark. Excellent book that talks a lot about the things that will be taught in these next few weeks. Great book to look into. Another book is a must-read. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. If you're tired, you have to read this book. 
Like you got to put this on your Kindle or on your Amazon list. Like you got to read this book. Another book that I found personally really helpful is a book called Into the Silent Land by Martin Laird. It's a kind of kooky book because uh, he's all about contemplation, but it's been like ministering to my soul and influencing a lot of thoughts as well. And the last, the last one is not a book, but it's more of a ministry called The Way. There's a lot of resources that talks about the practices that I hope to introduce uh, to different people in our church. So just to let you know, a lot of the ideas come from these different sources. But, before, but as we uh, clarify that, let's get to the first point, an invitation for the weary. Um, as you're in this room today, how many of you are feeling a little bit tired, a little bit weary, a little bit burdened? Just by the spirit of the room, I think we all kind of are, right? A little bit. Uh, probably just in different degrees that we feel a little bit tired. You know, college students, if you're a college student here, we joke around a lot in our church saying that your best life is now and it's all downhill from here. Like we, that's the joke we often give. But just know, as, even though we joke about that, I would never want to be a college student again. Because co- when you think about being a college student, it's kind of burdensome. Your life is kind of hard. In fact, it's probably the hardest it's ever been in the history of mankind. I would argue that. You know why? Because back then, when you had to think about your career, you actually didn't have to think much about it. You became what your dad was. You became what your mom was. Your career was inherited. Your father's a farmer. You're a farmer. What about your spouse? How do you find a spouse? Don't worry about it. Your parents, they find you a spouse. And even though that's very oppressive, it's kind of freeing. It kind of removes a lot of burdens that are there. Because today, you poor college students, you get to find and choose somebody to spend the rest of your life with. And you get to find and choose a career for the rest of your life. And as freeing as that sounds, it's kind of stressful. It's a bit stressful. Alan Noble, he wrote this great book. He's a, a, college, he's a professor and he talks about his students and he describes the uh, student life like this, quote, the secret to a good life, students are told, is discovering what you love and doing it for the rest of your life. And our society has provided so many career choices that all my students have to do is discover that one perfect career and be good enough to get hired. But if you spend any time really thinking about that, it's actually quite terrifying. There's tremendous terror of trying to choose the one right life. I think that's true. One saying that uh, millennials always had was FOMO, fear of missing out. You know what Gen Z struggles with? It's not FOMO, it's FOBO, fear of better options. Did I choose the right option? Is this going to make me happy? Is this person going to make me happy? And that's why the number one mental health crisis in college, you know what it is? Anxiety. 65% of collegians say they struggle with anxiety. Now, we think as college students, well, once I find that career, once I get into grad school, even though life is still hard, it should feel better. My burdens should be lighter, right? Look around, college students. Do we seem happy? Do we seem less tired? Oh, it just gets heavier. The burden gets heavier. You now work six to eight hours every single day. You now have debts that you have to pay and you're stuck. You now have to really look for a life partner, a spouse to find. It really counts now. And your career You're just now, even though you're in it, you're just always questioning, like, do I like this job? Do I like this career? 
Do I like where I'm headed? And what happens is if you think about it long enough, you're filled with a lot, not only doubts, but regrets. One, uh, one uh, professor, his name is Christian Smith, he talks about adults and what we struggle with. He says, quote, young adults, they find it hard to cope when real life often turns out differently. Stagnant careers, failed romances, personal insecurities, financial difficulties, and other disappointments and problems often lead to sarcasm, depression, apprehension, loneliness, and self-defeating gambits to force life to turn out that way it was promised to have worked. In other words, what he's saying is the reason why adults were not as happy or were sarcastic or were depressed or so forth or were jaded is because life didn't turn out the way that we thought it would. And that's why the number one mental health issue for adults, it's not anxiety, it's actually depression. There's depression that plagues us. And so that's, uh, that's the adult life. But again, we think once we have a family and we just you know, advance in our careers, we're good. And when we become parents, then we'll be, we'll be okay. And just know as a parent, I don't need to quote nobody for this part. Uh, as a parent, it, it gets so hard because you, know, you, you adults, you think you're tired. But at least when you work a long day, and I know work is hard, and you get to go home and rest. You get to go home and do what you want. You could rock climb after work. You could go golfing after work. You could just go out with friends after work. Once you have a kid, that's gone. When you go home after a long day of work as a parent, your job has just begun. Because when I go home after a long day of meetings and planning and prepping, all I want to do is come home, drink a Coke, not Coke Zero, not Diet Coke, like real Coke, watch ESPN and just veg out. But I can't do that anymore. My life is over. When I come home, I must help Judah with his homework. I have to help Emma and play with her or I have to hold my baby daughter Izzy. And we are doing that all night. It does not stop until bedtime. But even bedtime, that's not fun. We must entertain our kids before they go to bed. We must wash them. We must brush their teeth. We must clean them. We have to read them a story, and then we put them to bed. And once they go to bed, it's not over because they get up all the time. They wake up asking, oh, I'm so thirsty. They want water from us. They wake up. They found a random cut on their finger, and they want to show us. They want a hug from us. They want whatever they can do to get us out of bed. And what happens is by 9 p.m., we are just so exhausted as, as parents. Your parents did not sleep at 9 p.m. because they're morning birds. They're just tired. And we're tired too, as a parent. Exhausted. Do you know what the number one mental health issue is for parents? Nobody knows. Because we're too tired to take those tests. We're too tired to ever do a survey. Nobody knows what a parent struggles with. But we do know that we are all so exhausted. Does any of that relate to you? Is that something that you could resonate with where you're, you're burdened with anxiety because you're figuring out what life is like or going to happen? Or you're depressed because of what, how life is turning out? Or you're just so tired that you just feel this weariness that's overwhelming you? If that's you, Jesus is, has an invitation for you. He's thinking specifically of not the person who has everything well put together, not the person who's carefree, but he's thinking of people Every single day, you have this low-level fatigue 24-7 that you just cannot shake. And what Jesus says is he has an invitation to come to him. He wants to offer you something. He wants to offer you rest. Look again what it says in verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice Jesus, he does not just offer any type of rest. He goes, if you're tired, come to me, because I have a type of rest that you desperately need. Rest for your souls. That word soul, suke in the Greek, it's often translated as life. And it refers to the most deepest, intimate parts of your life. And Jesus is saying, that dark part of your life, that part that's always so restless, I can offer rest for that. Not just a physical rest, a deep soul rest that's there. Now, if I said that to you going, hey, come to me and I'll give you this deep rest that you're looking for. Your first question should be like, who are you? What makes you qualified? What do you have to offer to give me rest? And that's why Jesus, he actually told us. Jesus says he has access to the one who can minister to our souls. Verse 27, look what Jesus said earlier. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is saying uh, he has a unique relationship with God the father And he can reveal the Father to anybody who he chooses to. And we get rest from that because Jesus, he is the one who gives us access, whom our souls were made for, and whom can rest, give rest to our weary souls. There's a Korean restaurant out in the OC area. I'm not going to mention the name, but my wife and I, we love this restaurant. Whenever we're craving Korean food, we will go there. But there's one problem. If you went to that Korean restaurant at 5 p.m., you won't get a table until 7 p.m maybe 8 p.m. But we happen to know the owner's daughter very well. We know her so well that whenever we plan to go to the restaurant, we go, oh my gosh, it's going to be so crowded. Let's give her a call. We'll call her. We'll text her. As soon as we come right away, step this way. We come, we get a table. It's awesome. In fact, we know her so well that one time my neighbors, uh, they, they got introduced to Korean food for the first time. They said, do you guys know any good Korean food around the area? Like, we do. It's in the OC. You should check it out. They went and they're like, oh my gosh, the wait time is so long. What do we do? I'm like, just hold on. Texted, my, texted our friend who we know very well. Next thing we know on Instagram, boom, they're just eating right away. We know intimately this person who has access to the restaurant where we're able to get the good Korean food and the timing that we need. And Jesus, he's saying something similar. I have access to somebody who can give you rest for your souls because you were made for that somebody. Your soul was made from him. That's why sleep, Netflix, golf, it it is relaxing, but it will not give you the type of rest that you are looking for because your soul was made for something greater. Augustine, he says it like this, quote, You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart, it is restless until it rests in you. And Jesus is saying, I know this person who your soul was made for. I can give you access to his presence, and your soul will find this rest that's there when you're in his presence. So that's why Jesus says, come to him. Come to him, find rest. Now, how many of you, when you hear this, you to hear how come to, you're tired, come to Jesus, and you'll find rest. How many of you, when you hear this, you totally do not relate to this? How many of you are like that? Because for a lot of us, we might think, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been going to church for a long time. I've been coming to Jesus. But I'm tired still. I'm really tired. I'm worn out, I have fatigue. And to be honest, when we're talking about this, as you talk about telling me come to Jesus, or we talk about these practices, that makes me more tired. I feel really exhausted hearing this. 
it seems like Jesus is almost another weight to add onto your shoulders. And so many people who end up following Jesus, they don't look rested at all. We look more worn out. So what does Jesus mean when he says, come to him and he'll give us rest? How can we experience that? And that leads to the second point, the secret of the yoke. Notice Jesus tells us we can experience not just rest from him, but we do something. We take on what he calls a yoke. In verse 29, it says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As many of you know, if you went to church, yoke, it's not an egg yoke, but it actually refers to a first century agrarian instrument that farmer use, farmers use for their animals. It's kind of like this on the picture, uh, cows or whatever it is, they're pulling a cart. And to make it easier, they put this wooden thing on, that attaches the cow onto them and they could pull it together in an easier way. That's, that's a yoke. That's something that our farmers would use. It, now, what's interesting about that imagery though is in the first century, a yoke is a symbol for work, It's a symbol for labor, not for rest. That's a strange imagery for Jesus to use. It's like me saying, you want rest? Here's here's an office desk. Here's a chair. Here's a cubicle. Find your rest. It's like, that's such a counterintuitive imagery for rest. So why does Jesus use that? And I love what uh, one commentator named Frederick Bruner, he says it like this, quote, a yoke is actually a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least, They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift that he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. In other words, life is hard. You cannot avoid that but you can choose what kind of yoke you use to navigate your life, to bear the burdens of your life. That's your choice. Years ago, I remember I was eating with a friend at a hamburger joint. And this was years ago, so I didn't know the different things that eating habits that people had. And he did something that I never saw before. He ordered a hamburger where there was no buns. It was just lettuce wrapped around the meat. And I remember thinking, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you eating your burger that way? And he told me that he was trying to lose weight by doing something called the keto diet, which I'm sure a lot of you, you are familiar with. That the keto diet is pretty much where you avoid carbs and you just take a lot of protein. And the thought is your body goes through a certain type of state where it takes out the, the fat and it burns it off naturally. So I asked him, what does the diet consist of? He said, I just can't eat carbs. I'm like, well, what does that mean? He's like, so no pizza, no bread, no pasta, no rice. When he said rice, I was like, oh my gosh. No, rice, like that's insane. But he was like, no, I'm doing it, man. And trust me, all these people do it and it works. Like you lose all this weight, it works, dude. It's been working for me and so forth. So I was like, okay, cool. I was like, why don't you just uh, go to the gym instead? That sounds horrible. He was like, no, go to the gym. It takes time. It takes so much money. So I could just live my life, just change my diet. It's all good. And I was like, all right, you do you. Months later, we meet again. We're at a restaurant where we order food. He's eating rice. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are, why are you eating rice? He's like, dude, I can't do that keto diet no more. I'm like, why? He's like, I'm miserable. Like, it's a horrible existence. I'd rather be fat. I'd rather be unhealthy. I'm just like, really? Like, that's, that's, you're just giving it up? He's like, yeah, man. And pretty much he summarized, I'd rather pay money and go to the gym than go through the atrocity of a keto diet. It's just not worth it. Because losing weight, it's hard. You can't avoid that. But the yoke you choose to how to lose weight, whether it be a keto diet or exercise, that's your choice. 
Whatever you choose to do to bear the burden. In a similar way, life is hard. You can't avoid that. But the yoke that you choose, that's something that's up to you. And you don't even know, but you are yoked onto something to help bear the burdens of your life. And the question you have to ask is, is it really bearing the burdens the way you want it to? Some of you, because you know life is hard, you know life is hard. So you know what you do? You work harder. You get ahead of the curb so that you could work really hard because life is so hard so that later when you're older, you could relax. You go super hard for the next two to three years thinking this for this internship. Just for this internship, I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to drop church. I'm going to drop reading my Bible, prayer, relationships, healthiness, everything I'm going to drop just for two to three years. Because once I do that, I'll get ahead and I'll be okay. Or some of you know, it's not the internship. It's once I get this new job, I'll have to establish myself. And once I get this new job, I'm just going to work go super hard these next two, three years and then I'll be good. Or for some of us, like, no, once I have a baby for just these next zero to two years, actually, no, these next four to five years, no, no, these next six to eight years. And you keep doing that. And what ends up happening is it's this lie that you tell yourself, saying, I'm just going to go super hard and I'm going to get advanced in my life and then I can rest later. But we don't realize what ends up happening is instead of advancing your life, you end up sabotaging your life because you're putting your soul through trauma. You're putting your soul through this type of pace and this hurry and this kind of recklessness that you just weren't made for. And you just never recover. I've never met somebody who they went really hard for five years and afterwards they're like, that was worth it. I'm in such a place of peace. My burdens are gone. It might be lighter because you're so crazy back then. But that's something that, that doesn't not necessarily a good formula. But for a lot of us, that's our yoke. That's how we bear our burdens. We just go hard for a few years. Well, for some of us, this is the more popular one. We go, we put our burdens and bear it by planning vacations. Not just any vacations, like epic vacations. We go hard on these trips. Like you guys go hard. Like again, I told you guys last week, I can't look at your Insta stories because I'm like jealous how hard you guys are going in your trips. And again, I'm not against vacations at all. Like I love vacations. Like go on your vacations. But realize how many weeks in your life do you go on vacation? Four weeks? Maybe max six weeks? If you have a generous boss, eight weeks? What do you do about the other 42 to 48 weeks of the year? You just trudge along. You just suffer. You just kind of die slowly until the vacation brings a relief. And what ends up happening is that's why after vacations, even though the vacation is nice, when you come back, you're still tired. You're even more tired afterwards. One uh, Christian leader named Karen Newell says it like this, quote, the problem isn't how you spend your time off. It's how you're spending your time on. When the way you're living is broken, all the time off in the world, it won't fix it. Because you're just going at this pace that just jacks you and vacation brings relief, not rest. And so what do the rest of us do? The yoke that we do is we self-medicate regularly just to get ourselves through the day. Some of you binge Netflix, you binge Korean dramas. Some of you play video games and get lost in the world after a long day. Some of you, you drink. Some of you take prescription drugs. Some of you watch porn. Some of you, you sleep. Some of you just endlessly scroll through TikTok or YouTube channels. You work out, you get into stocks. You do whatever you can just to bear the burden of the day. And even though you do that, again, it brings relief because it's a coping mechanism. You're still, t- you're always tired. You're always kind of exhausted. There's this fatigue that's there because you have yoked yourself to something to relieve you of the hardships of life. And it's giving you relief, but not this deep inner rest that you need. And that's where Jesus says, hey, all that stuff, take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Because it's, according to verse 30, it's easy. It's light. 
and it will bring you rest for your souls. Now, here comes the key question, and this is the one takeaway I hope we could all take. What is Jesus's yoke? What is he talking about? Like, what's the imagery that we should have? And Jesus, he tells us in verse 29, it's, it's very explicit. Verse 29 says, take my yoke upon you and what? Learn from me. Learn from me. Jesus lived the most truly human, fullest life ever on the face of this earth. He was a busy guy. He was the Messiah. He had a lot of things to do. And yet Jesus was the most gentle, most kind, most chill, most easygoing, most convicted, most deep person in the world. I love like this imagery that I heard where, you know, when you look at the life of Jesus, whenever he goes anywhere, there is no type of stress or rush. Someone's dying. Oh, it's all good. Let's go. Let's take five days to go there. As he's going, someone goes, someone else is dying. Okay, let's go. And they're like, what are you doing? Oh, don't worry. I'll be there. And he just, he's just so chill. He's all good. And the reason what Jesus is trying to say, that doesn't happen automatically. Jesus, he lived a certain way in order for him to have that type of, the spirit to move in that way in him. And he's telling us, take my yoke, meaning like that animal imagery, attach yourself to me and come, come follow me. Look at my pace. Look what I do. Learn from me. And therein lies the secret of the yoke. Dallas Willard, he says like this, quote, in truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail. What Willard is saying is if you want to learn the yoke of Jesus, you have to live like Jesus. Adopt his lifestyle in all of life. Or I like how John Mark Comer puts it, puts it like this quote, if you want to live the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, before we move on to what that looks like, let me address two different groups here in light of that. To my church friends, to people who you grew up in the church or like the gospel and so forth, um, we get the gospel wrong if we only see Jesus as savior which I feel like for a lot of gospel-centric people, that's what happens. The gospel tells us we're not just saved by Jesus' death on the cross, although that's true, due to death on the cross, my sins are removed, the punishment is paid, but it's not just Jesus' death, but it's Jesus' life also, where it is covering me, it is the technical words imputed onto me, where now God does not judge me based on my life, but he judges me based upon Jesus' life, and because of that, I am called righteous. Amen to that. That's true. But the gospel goes wrong when that's the only relevance of Jesus' life. The only purpose of Jesus' life is to cover my righteousness and that's it. Because when I read my Bible and my New Testament, aren't we also supposed to conform into the image of Christ? Aren't we also supposed to be able to look like him and become like him? In other words, Jesus' life is not just something imputed onto me, but it's also something that I am to slowly weave into, slowly grow into, slowly take steps into. That's what we're supposed to do. And in our kind of more conservative circles, for some reason, we have a hard time with that because we think there's something that affects the gospel. But I don't think that's really true. Uh, Francis Chan, he was at a conference, and I thought he spoke really well to the, the age of our church era these days. He says this, quote, Some of you talking to Christians, you really, 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 really like Jesus. But if you are honest with yourself, you don't really want to become like him. 
You praise him, you sing songs, you love him because he loved you enough to suffer his whole time on the earth for your sake. But you're going to make sure you have fun while you're down here and that you have a good time. In short, you think Jesus is a great savior, but not a great role model. He's good for my salvation, but he's not good for my everyday life. And that's like this churchy mentality that a lot of us has that I think is just not true. You violate the gospel when you leave it at that. For others of us, maybe that's not something that we kind of wrestle with, but you're, you're just tired again. Like you barely are paying attention to this whole sermon. <laughs> you're so tired. You're just weary. And again, when we talk about following Jesus, you're like, oh, all right, so what are these practices? Like, I'm so tired. I have a baby that I'm holding my arms. I have a stroller that I'm pushing around. I have a, a deadline that's due tomorrow. You're just tired and weary. And I think the reason why Jesus and following Jesus feels so tiring is because of this. You plan to live your normal life and you're figuring out how do I add Jesus on top of that? How do I squeeze Jesus into that? You're going to have the same schedule. You're going to have the same late evening habits, the same Netflix shows, the same tea times, the same friend hangouts. And you go, I have to add Jesus to that too. That feels really exhausting. And it is exhausting if that's how you approach your faith. That's very exhausting if you try to live your life like you are and you add following Jesus on top of that. The most exhausting thing that you could do, and that's why a lot of Christians are exhausted. But Jesus is saying, if you want to follow him, you have to not add him like this. You have to reshape your whole life. Everything has to change. That's what Jesus literally says is following him, denying yourself, taking up your cross, reexamine not just the parts of your life, but all of it so that you can follow him. You know, recently my wife, she's been rebuking me. She's like, "Hun, can you do me a favor? I'm like, what do you need me to do? Can you wake up earlier for me every day? I'm like, what do you mean? Because I wake up pretty early. I wake up like at 7.15 because the kids, that they get to school, we have to leave by 7.30. So I wake up at 7.15 and I make sure like, hey, I get ready. And then 7.30, we're good. And we just go. And she's like, no, I get it. Like you're waking up early and you're getting the kids ready, but it's stressful when it's like that short of time to get the kids out. So can you wake up earlier every day? I'm like, no problem. Got this. I haven't been waking up early at all. It's so hard. It is so hard to wake up early for myself. And I remember thinking, you know, this is just a hard thing to do because I'm not a morning person and so forth. But the more I thought about it, because I have to wake up earlier because my wife was stressing out, I realized, oh, the reason why I have a hard time waking up early is because I sleep really late. It just makes sense. I'm like, wow, I sleep really late? If, you, if you're on Instagram and you follow me, I post stuff really late because I'm up really late. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just need to sleep earlier so that I could wake up earlier. Makes sense. I have not been sleeping earlier. It's so hard. It's so hard to sleep early. And you know why it's hard to sleep early? I realize this. My day is jam-packed. Like I am nonstop from 7.15 a.m. all the way, when I told you the whole kid's, kid life and so forth, all the way to 9 p.m. So 9 to whatever ungodly hours are after that, that's my time. My time. And I realized like, oh my gosh, I, it's not just I have to wake up early. In order for me to do this, I have to re-examine not just my nightlife, my life, like my day. How do I spend my time? Because if I don't affect this, if I plan to keep this, but change this, it's not going to happen. In fact, this is going to feel burdensome. My wife is going to feel like oppressive because she's doing this to me. And a lot of us, that's how we view Jesus. Jesus wants me to do this. I can't do that. It's too crazy. Why? Because you're doing this and you have this and you're not willing to let go of this. This is your precious time, your precious you time. 
And this feels like this burdensome oppression that Jesus is doing. And you could choose to do that, but you're going to be tired. You're going to be weary. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to find rest, like consistent rest, a rhythm of rest for your souls, you have to change this. This has to shift. And then you will find the rest that I'm talking about. And so that leads to the last point, the practices. So what what are we talking about here? What does it look like to actually change that? When we look at the practices of Jesus, one thing I want to really emphasize is do not see this as commands. I think the word command, even though I believe in commands, it it tends to color it in a way that I don't think Jesus really means us to understand it. Um, One quote that John Mark Comer, I think, is helpful. He says like this, quote, Jesus, these these practices, he didn't command us to follow his practices. Neither did he give lectures on how to do them or offer Saturday morning workshops. He simply set an example of a whole new way to carry life. Then he turned around and said, if you're tired of the way you've been doing it and you want rest for your souls, then come, take up the easy yoke and copy the details of my life. Another way I like to see it is instead of viewing it as commands, view it as a template for your life, a template. Uh, you ever had try to make a document that you had no idea how to make? Like I was, I've been told as a, as a church leader, like, hey, can you make this spreadsheet? Can you make this foundational document? I'm like, I have no idea how to do that. So I just start typing and it's chaotic. It's just chaos. So the best thing I could ever do is I ask somebody, go, do you have a template for that? They send me a template. I go, just fill it in. I create it my own way, but I fill it in. And it kind of gives me a breath of fresh air. I go, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. Jesus is saying something similar. Your life is crazy. And that's why you feel crazy. Let me give you a template for life. This is a template. Adjust your life to this. And Jesus says, when you organize your life that way, he promises something. Rest. So what are these practices? What are the practices that Jesus does? The best place to look at is in the Gospels, the four Gospels of Jesus' life. And what we're going to do is we're going to, even though there's a lot we could uh, spell out, I want to highlight these next eight weeks, uh, eight different practices, eight practices that Jesus does. And I want to preview them one by one right now. Number one is this, silence and solitude. The practice of silence and solitude. I think this is the most needed practice of our day in this day and age where it's so noisy, it's so loud, you can't get off your phones, you can't turn off the TV. In this crazy day and age, silence, solitude, the practice of being still, away from the noise, and remembering that God is here. That's a practice that is the most needed in our time and day. And Jesus does it all the time. Here's the second practice, Bible reading. I describe it as the most foundational practice. It's a practice of where you're in the midst of CNN and Fox News and your friends and your parents, all their voices shaping you. This is a time where you pause and you're hearing God's voice and allowing his words to shape your life. There's a practice of thirdly, a prayer. I think this is the most difficult practice where you are not just hearing God's voice, but you're really trusting that God hears your voice, that you are sharing your heart with him and you're making that a regular rhythm of your life. Fourth practice, fasting. This is probably the most neglected practice of the church where we are denying our body of what it wants so that we can remember what we really need. Fifth practice, Sabbath, the most countercultural practice. It is the practice of one day every week you set aside to pause and to rest and to stop working. Sixth practice, hospitality. I describe this as the most life-giving practice where you open your homes to people, you break bread, and you fellowship together. Seventh practice, simplicity, the most life-changing practice 
where you declutter your life, you empty your Amazon cart, you look at all the things that you think you want and you realize that's less material possessions, that's cluttering you of feeling things and even being aware of things. Simplicity. And the last practice, generosity, the most rewarding practice, the practice of giving ourselves, our finances, our services to others for their betterment. I'm not saying all these practices, adopt them now, but rather some of these practices, we're doing them and it's great, but you're only doing one or two of them. And that's why your soul needs more than that. For others, you're doing some, but you're neglecting some. For others, you're not even aware of these different things that are going on. For some of us here, you're not doing any of it, and that's why you're just so exhausted. And so I hope what this can be are resources and channels of grace for us to realize that God, he makes himself available in so many different ways for us to experience rest with him. So the plan for these next few months is this. Every Sunday, we're going to teach about each practice, see how Jesus did it, and how does it look like in our lives. In our community groups, what we're going to do is we're going to invite community groups to discuss the practices and consider even adopting a practice, to practice it together. It's at your pace. It's your choice. Community group leaders, you do at your pace, your choice. But every week we're going to invite you, hey, how can we practice this as a community? We're also going to try to, in the new year, after we're done with the series, create something called formation groups, where we want to help you do the practices. Where, hey, if you, not just invitation, but let's do it. Like, let's do some of these practices so we could really grow. And the hope that this could become a culture of our church, where this isn't just a one-off, but regularly we revisit these practices and talk about, are we doing this? How are we growing in this? Let's really do a deep dive into this. Because if you want to find rest for your souls, Jesus invites you by taking upon his yoke, learning from him, seeing what he does, and inviting you to do the same. Not because the practices themselves do something, but they connect you to someone. They are channels of grace. It's communion with the living God whom our soul finds rest in. To conclude, let me just share this final story. Uh, there's a book that I'm reading called Life of the Beloved. It's written by this, uh, this Catholic thinker named Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen, he's an interesting guy because he was a Harvard professor uh, his whole life, an intellectual. But he spent the final years of his life working, uh, leaving Harvard, and he worked with uh, people with mental disabilities. That was like how he spent the rest of his life. And what's interesting in the book Life of the Beloved, He's writing to a friend who's not a Christian, and he's kind of explaining to him, like, his, like why does he live his life this way? Like, why, how does he even maintain a life that he's living, and how does, why is he a Christian? And that one, at one point, that really struck me, he was saying, you know, as I think about, like, human life and life in general, the greatest trap in life, it's not success, it's not popularity, it's not power, but it's self-rejection. That is the worst trap that brings everybody down. And the reason why is because when you believe in the voice that calls you worthless, that says you're unlovable, success, popularity, and power, those become attractive solutions. That's why we turn to those things. And that's why the most important thing that a Christian can do every single moment, every single day, is to hear from the voice of God that you are beloved, that you are truly beloved. And this is what the practices are meant to do. When Jesus comes and fasts, I don't think he's just fasting for the sake of fasting. When he prays, he's not praying just for the sake of praying. It is communion with the living God where he hears the voice of God, the triune God, where they had fellowship all of eternity. And just like at the baptism, when the voice of heaven came down, Jesus is hearing from God the voice, you are my beloved. And for all of us, this is something that our souls really need. More than a mattress, more than a vacation, more than just sleep, We need to know that somebody finds us beloved 
And we need to hear that voice as often as possible to give us the type of rest that we need. And so to conclude now, when uh, he says, when you come together and practice these things before the presence of God, there's a voice that you should begin to hear, and it's very faint right now. For some of you, you've never heard this voice. I'm not being a literal, but like this echo that's there. And this is the voice that you ought to be growing in. And he says it like this, quote, this is God speaking to his people. I have called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with the care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I have counted every hair on your head and guided you at every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. Wherever you rest, I keep watch. You belong to me. I am your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your love, your spouse. Wherever you are, I will be. Nothing will ever separate us. We are one. That's the voice you need in your heart. That's the voice you need to give you rest. And that's the voice that, that gives you peace with the anxiety, the tiredness, the weariness. And that voice is available to us if we come before the Lord into his presence. And so as I invite the praise team up, if I can invite us to even do that now where we just take a moment to pause and be still. And for some of us, maybe we need to share our burdens to God and how we're weary or tired. For others, maybe we need to kind of just confess what practices or we want or need. But I think for a lot of us, even take this moment just to be still, to be silent, to just be before God's presence and just realizing that God, he wants to, us to hear his voice, his voice of us calling him, calling us his beloved in Christ. And so we take a moment to pause, to be still, to be in his presence, to remember that he wants us to commune with him. And then afterwards, uh, I'll close this all in prayer. So let's take a moment to pause, to be still, to pray, and then we'll pray as a community.